If you have your Bibles, the sermon will be from Luke chapter 3. I'm going to pray right now. Father, as we look at your word in a portion of scripture that is difficult, we do pray that your spirit would come. We do pray that you would open eyes of those who doubt and are concerned. Pray that you would grant faith by your gift and allow each one of us here to see Jesus. See the beauty that all scripture is profitable because it is your breath. And so we pray now that you would speak to us in and through your word. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I begin, I want you to know that in addition to doing my own studies on the genealogies of both Matthew and Luke, which is a complicated thing, I also listened to a few sermons by R.C. Sproul and Ligon Duncan, and some of the ideas and one of the stories actually came from that one of those sermons, especially the story from Ligon Duncan. Um, and I, so I want to give attribution where needed and give them some credit. But let me tell you where I'm going today before we start, before you check out. This is not supposed to be, nor will it be, just a simple intellectual exercise. We're going to do some thinking. But I want you to see from this simple genealogy that we are going to see that because Jesus was historical, because he fulfilled the Old Testament promises and prophecies, and because he's the Son of God, we can put all our trust in him instead of ourselves. But before I get to this, I'm going to point out the elephant in the room. I'm preaching today on... Luke chapter 3, 23b to 38. And there are two things that might be going through your mind. The first um, is that the genealogies of Matthew and Luke are quite different. This may have caused much troubles for you in the past. Maybe a college professor of religion, a skeptical friend, a co-worker who tried to use this to prove that the Bible is untrustworthy. And so before I move to the second thing, I will get there in a moment, I want to talk about this particular point. I'm going to front load this. So if, you're, if your eyes start to gloss over as I talk about this, don't worry. We're going to catch back up and we'll get into the main points of the sermon. Have you ever wondered, though, how from about two, less than, a little less than 2,000 years ago, that church, the church generally though they have questions about this passage, really hasn't been bothered by it. You ever thought about that? Church hasn't really been bothered by it. They have theories on it. Matthew and Luke, the genealogies in them, as you hear them and you see these differences, why is the church not bothered by it? Well, in general, there are four different responses to this, I want you to put yourself in one of these four categories. Number one, distrust. 
I won't trust the Bible completely unless I have absolute proof with no doubts left in my mind and all my questions are answered. I'll pick out what I think is true within the Word. That's the first, distrust. The second, blind faith. I don't care. I'm going to check my brain at the door. I just don't want to think about it. That's an option. Number three, I call this a rooted but bigger fish to fry faith. God has always been reliable and trustworthy. I have the spirit of Christ and his love in my heart. I'll trust his word because of the confidence of the spirit's inward testimony to me. There must be something I don't understand or something that I, that we are missing. And anyway, seems like a waste of time for me to dig into it. Someone has the right answer. That's number three. Number four, an informed faith. I will study all the options and I will pick one that sounds the most reasonable to me and that I believe aligns with the presuppositions that God's word is trustworthy. Make sense? Those four different options, right? I'm not going to trust. Um, check my brain at the door. That's eh, okay. Um, you know, but I'm not really going to study it or I'm going to dig into it and pick the one I think is best. At any rate, I want to give you four plausible explanations for the discrepancies, the apparent discrepancy in the genealogies. The first and most common one. Matthew is giving Joseph's genealogy and Luke is giving Mary's. Now, a lot of people believe that. Perhaps verse 30, 23b clues us into this. Jesus being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. In other words, maybe Luke is hinting that Joseph was supposed, the supposed father of Jesus, but Joseph really isn't the father of Jesus and instead uh, Heli is Mary's father, perhaps. The other one has been around for almost 1,800 years, and it was proposed by Africanus in the 3rd century AD, and it suggests that Joseph's family had a Leverite marriage. Now, Leverite marriage is basically where um, you had a brother, two brothers, one of them was married, he died before he had kids, and so the other brother, who's not dead, comes and marries her, and then they have a kid, and that kid is the brother's kid, the brother who's dead's kid, treated the inheritance and all that. That's a leverate marriage. Um, and that Matthew is giving us Joseph's line through Jacob, who was his actual father, and Luke is giving his line through Heli, who was his legal father. Another, more recent one, argues that Matthew gives the legal or royal descendants of David, the people who would have been king had David's line continued. But Luke gives the actual descendants of David that end with Joseph, and these two lines converge in Jacob the father of Joseph didn't have a child, so the session was passed through Heli's line. The last one, which is relatively new, you might think, um, is that Luke's, that Luke's genealogy is Joseph's and that Matthew's genealogy is Mary's. Now, believe it or not, in the second century and third century, Clement of Alexandria actually said this, continued down to Mary, speaking of Matthew, that Matthew's genealogy continued down to Mary, the mother of the Lord. And then Victorinus of Patau in the third century said, Matthew strives to declare to us the genealogy of Mary. And actually, Justin Martyr made reference to Mary as a virgin of the family of David. Of course, this theory, along with all of them, have their issues. So, honestly, these are all plausible options. 
But in this time and space, there is no consensus. Just not going to get agreement. Personally, after studying, I actually believe that one of the genealogies is of Mary. Now, I want to say two things. First, just because there isn't consensus now doesn't mean there won't ever be. Do you understand this? Like, just because today we don't understand something, you never know what will happen later. Maybe somebody finds some scrolls in the Dead Sea, you know, somewhere like they did before, and they look and they're like, oh, here's what we're missing. Maybe. But the other thing is, is that we live in a broken world. Do you know that? So that essentially we expect things to be tied up in this neat little bow, but that's just not the way the world is. This is one of those questions that you can get answered probably in heaven. Now, I want to assure you though that you don't need to question the truth and the historicity of God's word because of this. In fact, it should give you more certainty. Why would a discrepancy in a genealogy give you more certainty? Because Christians don't hide things. Because they trust in the infallibility and inerrancy of the word, and they believe that God has it completely under control. Because if, if I was trying to make an airtight thing, do you know what I would do? I would just get rid of one of the two genealogies and say, I don't understand this, so boop, wipe it. I don't know if you know this, but Islam... They had all these copies of their writings to the Prophet Muhammad and there was one caliphate who came and you know what he did? Destroyed everything but one copy because of all the discrepancies between them. Right Now the Bible doesn't have tons and tons and tons of discrepancies. Just things we don't understand. right? Like these genealogies. But the reality is, is God's not trying to hide anything. And I wonder whether or not God has put this here to test you and I like Adam and Eve in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. If you eat of it, the day, in that day you'll die. And what did mankind do? I want the knowledge. I want to determine for myself what is right or wrong. Did God arrange this the writing in the scriptures, to test us to see whether we will trust his word or whether we will lean on our own understanding. A question for you. So, we must trust God and take him at his word. Christians from the first century onward felt that God's word can be trusted and so can we. Now the second thing, and don't worry, I'm done with all this intellectual stuff, it is a genealogy, and you might be thinking, come on, pastor, these things are so boring. Can't we look at something practical? And to answer this, I want to tell you that I personally was encouraged this week by this genealogy, and I think you will be too. So we are continuing in our story of Jesus at the dawn of his ministry. He's just been baptizing, baptized, symbolizing the start of his ministry, identifying with his people, and being approved and anointed by God the Holy Spirit for his work. And now, I beg your pardon, I'm going to give this a shot. <laughs> if you've ever tried to read genealogies, I don't care if you know Greek or Hebrew, 
when you start reading them in the English, it starts to get a little bit fuzzy. So I'm going to do my best at pronunciation. And I've decided that in the sermon, I'm not going to repronounce names later. So even if I get them wrong the first time, you won't know because I won't do it the second time. All right. This is the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mattath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semin, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Ressa, the son of Adi, the son of Kossum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mattathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam. These are tough. The son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The grass withers, the flower, it fades, but the word of our God stands forever and all God's people said, amen. All right. I want to look at this genealogy under three headings. First, Jesus is historical. Second, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises and prophecies. And third, that Jesus is the Son of God. So let's start with point one. First, Jesus is historical. And this is why this genealogy should not bore us. It might be hard for us to read, but it shouldn't bore us. Jesus is historical. So there's a story, and this was the one that uh, um, Ligon Duncan told. In New Guinea, there was a Wycliffe translator who was doing his work of beginning to have the Bible translated into that language. So he thinks, okay, I got a good idea. I'm going to start out with the book of Matthew. And he's thinking, he's got these new translators here, and he's like, oh my goodness, the first chapter that's there is all of these names. Let's just skip to chapter two and get on with it. So he got the, he got the translators, and... They go to chapter 2, and they chap, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and chapter all the way through Matthew 28, and they get done, and none of the translators believed. And he's like, you know, goes up to them, right? And he says, he, after he traces, he says, what, what's going on here? He's so surprised. He's like, they're not believing it. Okay, it's fine. I need to finish up the book anyway. So he goes back to chapter 1, and he gets to start translating chapter 1 of the book. And then... When he started translating chapter 1, the men who were translating it by the fourth and fifth and sixth name, they're on the edge of their seats. They're all excited. Their eyes are lit up. 
And they're like looking at this. And he's looking at these guys like, what, what is going on here? And he starts to see their excitement. And he says, and, and, and then the, the guys, some of the guys look at him and he says, you mean that Adam was a real person? You mean that David, that Abraham, we thought these were just stories that foreigners made up. These weren't people who really lived. And the translator said, I've been telling you this all along. Yes, they're real people. And then they responded and said, we believe you now. We understand this. We can tell you about what our ancestors did 50 generations ago. We now know that everything that you've been telling us is true about this man, Jesus, and that he had real ancestors and they were all real people and God really did these things. Saved by a genealogy. See, by seeing the names, names of Heli and Joseph and Jodah and Melchi and so on and so on down to Adam, it shows us that Jesus is historical. He had a real mother. He had a real adopted father. He had grandparents on both sides. Kids, just like you have grandparents. Jesus had grandparents. And they all lived close by, so he could, they could, he could go see his grandparents. Can you imagine that? Listen, genealogies are not boring. Genealogies are powerful. When we read X is the son of Y... And Y of Z, and by the way, I want you to know in the original language, it doesn't say son of, son of, son of. It actually just says of so-and-so, of so-and-so, of so-and-so, all the way through. Okay? So there's no son of. So I want you to understand this. It, when it, in, in genealogies, it doesn't necessarily mean when you say X was the son of Y that there wasn't anything in the middle. You understand that, right? X of Y could be I'm of Adam. You could say James, the son of Adam, like... Okay, right? That's true. So you need to understand that. But these people had houses. They wore clothes. They ate food. They got married. They did similar things like you and I do. And all of these people were real. And since all these people were real, so was Jesus. He walked and he talked. He lived. Jesus is real. Because of this, he understands what it's like to walk in your shoes. Kids, got to look up at me for a second. Thank you. Jesus understands what it's like to be in your shoes. He had struggles. I'm sure he got made fun of by kids. Other kids. I'm sure he dealt with all the same things that you are. Right? He didn't get made fun of for sinning, but he probably got made fun of for the things that you get made fun of. He was real. Not just some picture up here some abstract concept. No. If he was here and you were in his time, he could talk with you. He'd be friends with you. 
He'd hang out with you. Jesus was real. Jesus was real. And so this is why we know that he knows our frame. He knows that we're made out of dust because when he was doing stuff, any, I don't know, maybe he was picking at his nail and got it down to the quick. Who knows? I don't know. Did he do that? Perhaps. And felt that pain. Scraped his knee. Hurt himself. All this stuff Jesus experienced just like you and I. This is why you know that God can have compassion on you. That he knows what you're going through. He knows your doubts and your fears. He knows what it's like to be a man and a man. I would argue that because he's God, he understands clearly what it's like whether you're a man or a woman. He understands. He did create you, but he walked in your shoes. Second point, Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies and promises. And this is why the genealogy should excite you and me. His Old Testament, all the Old Testament prophecies and promises are filled in Jesus. Now, notice verse 27. It says, Jesus is the son of Zerubbabel. Now, when the Israelites were in the Babylonian captivity... Jesus, the savior of the world's ancestors, longed for a savior. They hoped for a savior. They looked forward to a savior. And at that time, when the kingdom was broken down and they were in captivity, they heard the prophecies and promises of a Messiah to come. And this is in that time of Zerubbabel. Now, in this time, Jesus, of course was the ultimate fulfillment of them, but they were looking forward to their great, 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 great grandson, Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 31, notice here, it says that Jesus is the son of David. He is actually the offspring of David, who, after God had given Israel the promise by putting them in the land and establishing the kingdom, when David wanted to build a temple for God, God said, I'm going to build you a house. You want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to put my king, who is descended from you, on the throne, and he will reign forever and ever. The covenant that God made with David is fulfilled in Jesus. The connection with David is a connection to Jesus Christ, who is the king of kings and lord of lords, who reigns on the throne. And so Jesus Christ will reign and rule over his people. He's the fulfillment of David, the covenant with David as his, as his son. Now notice in verse 34 that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the offspring that God had covenanted with Abraham that would bless the world. You and all, I here in this room, we're not all Jews the last time I checked, right? We're, maybe some of us have Jewish roots in us. Maybe some of us don't. Maybe we're Germanic. Maybe we're Icelandic. Maybe we're, you know, Asian or maybe whatever the case may be. The reality is, is, is that the 
promise to Abraham was that in his offspring, singular, Paul says, the whole world would be blessed. Guess what? Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. And we in this room are the fruit of the fulfillment of Jesus' salvation program. Now, notice in verse 38 that it says that Jesus is the son of Adam. See, Jesus is the second Adam. You know what's really cool about this? We just saw last week the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus, you have this water, you have the spirit descending, very creational-like, okay? And you have God pronouncing Jesus good, just like he did at the end of creation, right? Everything is very good. Then you have this genealogy out of the blue, and you're like, what in the world? Why didn't he put it at the beginning like Matthew did? Well, do you know what's directly after that that we're going to look at next week? The temptation in the wilderness. Adam was put in a lush garden and had every single advantage that was known to man. And Jesus is put in the wilderness without food for 40 days. Adam is tempted once and failed. Jesus is tempted three times. Take matters into your own hands and don't trust the Father. Make sure that you can trust the Father. Push him a little bit and avoid pain. And Jesus, what does he do? He uses the word of God against Satan. Man will not live by bread alone. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test and you will worship God alone. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. And he is about to embark upon his journey in the next few verses. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Adam and Eve after they broke the law of God. He is the promise to them that he would bruise, his, his heel would be bitten, but he would bruise the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Adam brought ruin. Jesus brings healing. The parallels are so striking. It's so clear what Luke is trying to do. He's grounding us in the reality that Jesus Christ is the son of Adam, the fulfillment of all of these promises, and ultimately, third point, he is the son of God. Because he's not just a man. He's the son of God. So the genealogy ends with this declaration that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. Essentially, Jesus has been declared all throughout these three chapters of Luke that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And so Luke is just putting the final nail down and saying, see, Jesus is the Son of God. Do you know the Father declared him the Son of God? This passage, the genealogy declares him the Son of God. And do you know who declares him to be the Son of God in, in, in practice? Satan. If you're the Son of God then do these things. And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand what being the son of God really means. So Satan's active temptation against Jesus proves he's the son of God. 
So we're seeing this theme of Christ as the Son of God. Now remember that Mary, Elizabeth, Jesus himself, and God the Father, that all con- and the confirmation of the Spirit have all declared him to be the Son of God. And he's declared at his birth, in his childhood, and at his baptism by the Father, and in this genealogy, and in the next story, by Satan himself, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so what Luke is trying to show us is that Jesus is historical. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises, and that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what Luke is doing. He is the only one as the Son of God capable of rescuing us from the flesh ourselves, from the world, others, and from the devil. Only he is capable. All right. So that's the genealogy, the connection there to humanity, the connection to the prophecies and promises all through the patriarchs and through every one of those men in there that a promise was made to, God's covenant was made to, and then ultimately this declaration he's the son of God. Now how in the world can we take this passage and apply it to our lives? You're probably wondering. It's like, well, that's nice, Pastor, but like, what about Monday morning? So we can see through Adam, Noah, Abraham, and David that we as God's people should live by faith. Trusting God that he will fulfill all his promises. Do you think it was a coincidence that we read Hebrews chapter 11? It wasn't. We read Hebrews chapter 11 because that's the application of this. All these men lived by faith. They had a hope for a city whose builder and founder was God. They rested, they trusted in faith. Adam wasn't given a reason to not eat the fruit. Do you know that? Did you, did you ever, you read the Bible, Genesis, right? Chapter three, Genesis chapter two, Genesis. Was Adam told why he shouldn't eat the fruit? No. Don't. You'll die if you do. So the reason was don't die, right? But that, there was no other reason. He wasn't explained. Do you know what that sounds like? Faith, doesn't it? Trust. What God says, that's it. Noah. Noah was told the reason why he should build the ark, but Noah had no proof that it was going to rain. There wasn't even rain. Rain didn't exist. It came from the ground. The ground watered everything. There was no rain. God says, I'm going to make it rain, and I'm going to make it, and Noah's like, oh, Okay, God says, build an ark. He says, okay, what does that sound like? Faith. Abraham was given a promise that through his offspring, the world would be blessed. And he's 100 years old. And he just then has a kid. And his kids, his kid, right? You have Ishmael, but that wasn't the promise. So he's two, right? And he possibly more, but... This later, but you've got Abra- you've got Esau. You're not sorry. Skip ahead to my next one. You essentially you have Ishmael, right? And you have Isaac. Isaac has how many kids? 
The world will be blessed and you will have the whole land. And by the time you die, you've got like two grandkids. Trusting in God's promises that he will fulfill it sounds like faith. David, he's anointed a young man in Israel, spends many, many years wandering in the wilderness and mountains, hiding from the current king, fleeing for his life. He has no absolute knowledge of, an, of, of becoming a king and all he sees is that he's got the current king and his entire dynasty, except for Jonathan, of course. But Jonathan was trying to, you know, made a covenant with him. But the whole kingdom is out to kill him. And there David trusts and rests in the promises and says, when he had the opportunity, didn't kill Saul because it was the Lord's anointed. And he said, I'll become king when God wants me to be king. What does that sound like? Faith. You see, the world wants to put God under a microscope. You understand this? They want to dissect him in every word that he's spoken. Break it apart. Test it. Try it. They walk by sight, not by faith. Seeing this world and everything in it as what is true and what is real, empirical evidence, proof that can be touched, that can be seen and handled, that is required Yet Jesus could be touched and seen and handled. No doubt is allowed for the world. No mystery is allowed. Mystery is a heresy. Do you know that? Do you know what the heresy of the world is? It's mystery. You're not allowed to have mystery. You're not allowed to not know. You're not allowed to have questions. If there's questions, then you don't know all things. And if you don't know all things, then they can't be true. This is where the world is at. This is why they have such difficulty with the Bible because the Bible is written by the king of the universe who is a, a mystery and who cannot be reached into and determined every part of who he is and what he does. God is above you and I. The world doesn't like that. The world wants God to be figured out every little tiny last corner. And if it doesn't have that corner figured out, then God doesn't exist. That is what the world does. And so we are heretics to them because we believe in something that is outside of us. We believe in someone who can judge us and they are opposed to him because he is the judge. Listen, the world still lives in Adam and Eve's shadow. Do you know that? We must know for ourselves or better said, decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. But God speaks and tells us that he alone has power and authority. It is, it is we who are required to be judged by him and live according to his commandments, not the other way around. You don't get to judge him. You are not on the throne. You're not in charge. I'm not in charge. Jesus Christ is on the throne. He is sovereign. He decides what is right and wrong. We have no right to judge what is right and wrong. None. The only way we can judge right and wrong is by the Holy Spirit through the word. That's it. And what did Jesus say when he was tempted by Satan? 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, Hebrews 11:6 6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So as I mentioned earlier, could these genealogies simply be a test for you and I? Are we going to go by what we determine? What we think is right? What we think is wrong? Or are we going to please God by trusting him? Without faith, trust. It's impossible to please God. Impossible. Not just out of the ordinary, but impossible. Could this be for us, in a sense, another tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What will we do? What will you do? Will you stand over and judge God? Or will you look at your your own life, understanding that we did not bring ourselves into this world, we can't even keep ourselves alive, we are simply a finite, limited, dependent, and helpless being that needs to live by every word that goes from the mouth of God. But I want to connect you to one other thing in this passage. These men were not good people. You know that? How many of these guys were good people? Think about it. Just for a moment. Adam rebelled against God. Ate the fruit. Noah gets drunk and shames himself. Abraham is a liar and a coward. David is an adulterer and a murderer. What does this show us? These men needed this faith. You know that? They needed faith in a God who would rescue them from their evil and their rebellion. They needed a savior who would save the world and fulfill the promises that God made to them that they couldn't do. They needed grace. And where does grace come from? From God through Christ. The other thing is we can see God's grace to us in this passive passage. Jesus identifies with us both in his baptism and the reality of him being a real person. Jesus is not a story. Jesus is not a myth. He lived. He died. He had parents. He was flesh and blood with a real father, a real grandfather, so on to the end. He took our flesh and he lived the life that God required in this broken world. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, who is the promised heir of David. He is the king of Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Isaiah 32, he will reign forever on his father, David, father David's throne. Jesus is the heir of Abraham. All of God's promises to bless the whole world through him are yes and amen. No matter whether we are an adult, a child, a man, a woman from Africa, Asia, America, Australia, Europe, or some island, Jesus blesses us and makes us an inheritor with him through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Through Jesus, we have the promises of Abraham. Jesus is the second Adam who didn't fall. Through one man's disobedience came sin and death. But through one man's obedience came life and righteousness. And finally, he's a son of God. He's not just a great guy. 
He's not just a good prophet. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a great leader. Jesus is the very Son of God himself. You see, we're all tempted to trust in ourselves. We're all tempted to trust others. And you know what this genealogy shows us? Is that doesn't work. Every one of those men failed. Just like you and me fail every day. We sin in thought, word, and deed. We are sinners. People are sinners. And every sinner lets people down. Raise your hand if you never let anybody down in your life. <laughs> Leave it to a child. <laughs> I, can, I promise you kids that you have let your parents down. Yes, yeah, see. Listen, everybody's going to let you down, but Jesus if you put your faith in him, he won't let you down. He can't let you down. He's the I am. He's the bread of life. He's the living water. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the shepherd. He's the door. Jesus is all that, and he's yours. And you can bank on him. You can put all your faith in him, all your, all your trust in him. Even if you don't understand the genealogies, you can still trust in Jesus. Because it's not about whether one thing or another thing, and you have all the, all the explanations in your head. It's not about that. It's about whether you will trust God at his word. And will you believe through the, what God wrote through the Apostle Paul, which, by the way, the Apostle Peter he said that Paul's stuff is hard to understand, but he calls it scripture. He calls it scripture. And Paul said that all scripture is the breath of God. All scripture is the breath of God. If you start chipping away at Paul, you chip away at Peter. If you chip away at Peter, you chip away at Mark. Chip away at Paul, you chip away at Luke. Do you know Luke traveled with Paul? Peter, Mark got his gospel from Peter. You start chipping away, you start doubting, you, you lose everything, you lose it all. You have to trust God, even if you don't know everything. And I can tell you this, God is more sure than the constructs of your mind because you will change next week. You will change in 10 years from now. And the things that you believe now, I promise you, are different than the things you believed 20 years ago, aren't they? You change, but God never, never. Every word that he says can be banked on even if you don't understand it. And because you can bank on it, you know that Jesus Christ is true. And if Jesus is true, you have eternal life. But if Jesus is not true, you are dead in your sins. That's what the scripture teaches. So will you trust in Jesus even when you don't know every little tiny detail and have everything figured out? If not, 
your option is to trust in yourself. And brothers and sisters, I've done that. It's a terrible place to end. Father, would you help us to live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Father, I know that these things are, not, are hard, some, some of them, and there's not answers to every single question. But I pray that you would grant faith to those who struggle with these things. Lord, we don't want to discount them and the struggles that they're having with these. They need your spirit to help them to trust, to rest in you, the author and perfecter of their faith. Faith, Lord, is a gift from you. It's not of works. And so I pray that you would give that gift, grant that gift to everyone here, anyone who's doubting. Lord, let them come to you and find trust and rest in you. We praise you and we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.